Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning as, as you turn to Mark chapter 8 with me. just wanted to briefly extend my gratitude to the elders for being so understanding as we continue to help out our planting church, New England Bible Church, as I go down and preach once a, once a month down there, and also just you as a congregation for understanding that this is still a time of transition. It is truly a blessing for the planted church to bless, to bless the planting church, and we are able to do so not only by my occasional presence down there for preaching and the few days I spend down there for work, but simply knowing that you are worshiping, that we are worshiping here is a blessing to that church. Uh, on a related note, um, this Tuesday, uh, Leslie Thompson begins her uh, next stage of her treatment, so do keep her in prayer, um, as well as Pastor Tyler, the Thompson family, and NEBC. Well, this morning we're in Mark chapter 8, and we'll look at verse 1. It says, in those days, when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the crowd because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, this morning we'll be reading stories, true accounts, but indeed stories of things that happened, stories that we know well, that we teach our children, miraculous healings, miraculous multiplication of food, but there is a deeper truth, and there's a reason why this multiplication of food, while this, why this healing is in your word. Let us understand it. Let it be clear in our hearts and minds. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen. Well, let it never be said that I'm not flexible. Joe said that he was sure that I had football illustrations in my sermon, and I didn't. However... We're going to have one. I don't know if you've ever watched sports before. People watch sports, different sports. Some people like football, and today is a big day for that. Some people are more into the soccer, the rest of the world, for example. Some people prefer golf. Others like other sports, I'm not sure. Croquet, badminton. But one of the things that we can all agree upon if we watch sports on television is that when something is contested, a flag is thrown, a whistle is blown, a card is held up, that you will oftentimes have two very different perspectives about the exact same situation. So if the player steps close to the line, the referee blows the whistle and says, he is out of bounds, let's go to the replay. And they go to the replay, either in the stadium or simply on the, on the television at home. The people who are a fan of that team and want him to stay inbounds will say, there's no way. Look at it. There's at least three blades of grass between his toe and the white line. 
And those who are fans of the opposing team who would benefit from him stepping out of bounds will say, no, obviously you can see that he is on the white line, ergo out of bounds. It's not just sports. It's all sorts of situations. You could have uh, two people who get into an accident, maybe even at this intersection, and they would say, no, 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 I had the right of way because I saw this. And the other person says, no, 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 I had the right of way because I saw that. You may be watching a, a press conference, maybe even a White House briefing, and depending on your political affiliation, you might say, that was the most articulate thing that the president has ever said in his entire life. And everybody else says, I'm not sure that he was speaking English. Depending on your perspective, depending on your party affiliation, depending upon if it benefits you or doesn't benefit you, sometimes two people, two groups of people can look at the exact same situation and come away with completely different perspectives. When we read about Jesus feeding the 4,000, we understand what is happening. Because we, and, and the, the benefit that we have of 2,000 years of consistently and constantly reading the Gospels over and over again, we know that Jesus is in the business of multiplying food, not only to feed people, but to illustrate and demonstrate who he is, that he is divine, and that the things that he says are worth paying attention to because he's the kind of guy who can do something physically, tangibly, that nobody else can. Yeah, as we just read... The apostles, in seeing the exact same thing, in witnessing it, in being the ones who just a few maybe weeks ago, in, in, in real time in the narrative of the Gospels, ate bread that was miraculously multiplied, ate fish that was miraculously produced, they're now saying, where are we going to find food? Two different people seeing the exact same situation with two very different perspectives, two very different mindsets. But lest we think that we've got it figure out, figured out and the disciples are simple, primitive rubes, we need to understand something very true about the nature of revelation, the nature of spiritual insight, and the nature of knowing Christ and how it is a great, humbling leveling of the playing field as we see, particularly in our text this morning, what Christ says about having eyes to see and ears to hear the true spiritual things that he is intending to communicate as he performs these miracles. So with that said, we return to Mark chapter 8. And as we already read this morning, there was a crowd gathered, and it was a crowd that was gathered, and they were so enthralled with Christ's teaching and with the ministry of Jesus that they did not even bring food. Apparently, the moms back then didn't know about goldfish and granola bars. We don't go anywhere without food. But apparently, the food went and was eaten already, and they had been there for a long time, three days, and even the most well-prepared mom was probably not prepared for this. And Jesus, it says in verse 3, he says, if I send them away to their homes, they will faint, and some have come from a great distance. It says that he felt compassion on them in verse 2. It's interesting, this is a unique word or a unique phrase 
in, in, in Greek, and it, has to, it kind of has the connotation of Jesus, his, he was gut-wrenched because these people were wanting to listen to him, but he, they, they were now having a physical need. Now, I think this bears mentioning. This is certainly not the point of the text, but Jesus' response and the way that Mark records it is worth focusing on for just a brief moment. We are in the business of ministering to people. And we, as we talked about in the catechism already this morning, are in the business of ministering to people like Christ did. And so although we understand and we know that the fullness of Scripture, and even our text this morning, makes it undoubtedly clear that the point is spiritual peace, reconciliation with Christ. There is also a physical component to the lives of people. We are embodied spirits, which means we need rest, we need comfort, we need shelter, we need food, we need all of those things. Jesus here has a gut-wrenched response to seeing how these people are now in physical need. That means that we need to have that response also. We can't be of, of the pendulum that says all we do is feed people, but we also can't be on the other side swung to the point of saying we tell them about Jesus and they can figure out where they get food. It's just an important reminder that Christ, if, if we are going to be Christ-like, then we need to be like Christ. So moving on in verse 4, his disciples answered him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people. Again, they just saw the feeding of the 5,000. They just saw what was actually, in many ways, a much greater miracle because in the feeding of the 5,000 that we read a few chapters ago, that was listed as 5,000 men. So it's 5,000 men plus women plus children, much greater than 5,000. These 4,000 that we see here in Mark chapter 8 was 4,000 people. So the disciples are doubting. The disciples aren't seeing the bigger picture. The disciples aren't seeing what's actually going on even after they just saw this very same situation play itself out. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but let's go through the text. Look at verse 5. And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them. And he kept giving them to his disciples to serve to them, and they served them to the crowd. And they also had a few small fish, and after he blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over for the broken pieces. Now about 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. So there's a purpose in Mark recording this miracle. But there's still a miracle. So we'll talk about the purpose of the miracle. But first, there's still this miracle. And I think it bears mentioning because this is one of the things that skeptics, that, that even, even uh, left-leaning uh, Christian scholars will say, Mark might not have realized he recorded the same thing twice. But a very cursory reading of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 show quite different situations. The number, first and foremost, there were Jews in the feeding of the 5,000, and it's primarily Gentiles in the feeding of the 4,000. 
There's also that Jesus is more active in this. In the feeding of the 5,000, he basically stands back, and aside from multiplying the food, he tells the disciples to do everything. Here, he is more hands-on, as it were, with the crowds. But the other thing that we have to remember, and this is, this, this is true across the entire testimony of Christ's life, maybe this was just the kind of thing that Jesus did. Maybe he did it more than two times. And if he can do it one time, why is it hard to believe he can do it two times? And ultimately, if he can die and be raised from the dead, why would you be skeptical of anything else that the Bible says that he does? The ultimate miracle, the ultimate dramatic supernatural revelation of his divinity, the resurrection, it really gives license to the fact that he can walk on water, he can heal the blind, he can let the mute speak, he can let the deaf hear, he can raise others from the dead. He could feed two out of one, he could feed 5,000 out of seven, it doesn't matter. It shows a real breakdown in perspective and a real bias for naturalism to assume that Jesus could feed 5,000 or 4,000 once, but not twice. And that is aside from all of the literary differences that we just went through a moment ago. But what we see in this text, what we see here is that people saw Jesus doing this. The disciples saw Jesus doing this. The crowd saw people doing this. But the question that we have to ask is the did they see? Did they actually see what was happening? And for the disciples, we probably have to say no, they don't actually see what's happening because if they were paying attention here, then Jesus wouldn't say the things that he's going to say in the next few verses, but they probably weren't paying attention when he fed 5,000. If they doubted where they were going to get enough food in this situation, they probably didn't have the same kind of faith. Now, some might say, oh, they simply weren't being presumptuous. They, did, they realized that more often than not, they went through ordinary, normal means to get food. They went to the market and they bought food. They didn't get into this pattern of only bringing one sardine to Jesus and saying it's dinner time. You know, the 13 of us, can you make this work? I mean, we, we, we could have that perspective, but the fact of the matter is Christ's response says that they saw, but they didn't see. Food for the crowds illustrates that people were seeing, but they didn't understand. They were seeing, but they were not perceiving. This is a theme that gets really expanded in the Gospel of John, where Christ is actually critical of the crowds because they got to the point where they were coming just for the food and not for the message. This And again, this is not in our text this morning, but this is that balancing of the pendulum. We don't just feed for the sake of feeding, but we feed with the understanding that there's a greater ministry to be had. Well, continuing on in our text this morning, look at verse 10. It says, immediately he entered the boat and with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking for him a sign from heaven testing him. And sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, real quick, before we move on to interaction with the disciples, this is important to talk about for a few moments. The Pharisees 
are asking from a sign from heaven. What has Jesus' ministry, particularly as recorded in the Gospel of Mark, primarily been focused on? Miracle, miracle, miracle. Sign, sign, sign. Healing, dramatic uh, uh, um, reproduction of food, uh, calming of the natural elements. He has been in the business of performing signs. Did people necessarily equate seeing or being the beneficiary of a supernatural sign with spiritual sight? And the answer is no. It didn't always happen that way, which is, of course, a great reminder if someone says, well, if Jesus came to me today and he said, I'm alive, I'm, I'm, I'm Jesus, I'm actually the Son of God, then I would believe. He did that, and he did that in a dramatic fashion 2,000 years ago, and people didn't believe. The Pharisees wanted one more sign. They wanted a sign on their terms, which, of course, is not unique to the Pharisees. People want God on their terms. People want his revelation on their terms. People want him on their terms. The Pharisees, as it says, they wanted a sign from heaven. They knew Jesus' renown had spread. We're in a Gentile area right now, <coughs> excuse me, in our narrative, and Jesus' reputation had spread. As David talked about last week, we were in an area that was outside of the normal scope of Jewish life, but people still knew who Jesus was and his renown, his miracles, his supernatural works were well known. But the Pharisees wanted a special miracle just for them. But it wasn't asked out of faith. I think this is important, church. If we ask for something miraculous, a miraculous healing, a miraculous change of job, or a miraculous change of situation, something that we could only attribute to God, that is not testing God. But to say it in some sort of um, a way in which we are testing God, in, 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 some, in some sort of way where it is, it is almost like an a ultimatum. I will only continue to follow you if my bank account gets an extra zero at the end of it by noon tomorrow. That's the kind of thing that the Pharisees, Pharisees are doing. They're not asking for, for Christ to tell them something, to explain something. They're saying, simply do something, and then when we come back, then we'll believe in you. They were testing from an attitude and a heart of skepticism. And we see that in Jesus' response. Does Jesus ever sigh deeply in his spirit when someone is genuinely seeking after him? This is an interesting rendering of, of this phrase, and sighing deeply in his spirit. He actually does this twice in our text this morning. But this is, an, this is in his humanity, but also... This is something that we see the, 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 the person of God doing in the Old Testament. It's an expression of the frustration, an expression of the difficulty that is being encountered by Christ by unbelief. Unbelief is not something that God simply says, well, this is the standard operating procedure of rebel sinners. This is the standard operating procedure of those who are, um, who, who are antagonistic against me, so it is what it is. This kind of thing grieves the Father. This kind of thing grieves the Holy Spirit. And this kind of thing, as we see here as well, grieves the Son. 
Why does this generation seek a sign? And generation in Scripture always means generation, that people, that group of people that was there today. He says, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Why does Jesus say no sign will be given to this generation when he just did a sign and a few verses later he's going to do another sign? Why does he say this? Well, no sign is going to be given to them like the sign that they're asking for. Other gospels give this interaction more, more, more time, more ink, more words, but we're studying the gospel of Mark. And what Mark is communicating to us is that Jesus is not doing miracles on other people's terms. He's not doing miracles to meet a need that somebody else wants met. He is doing miracles to meet a need that has been sovereignly ordained from before the foundations of time, but certainly in the ministry of Christ for a purpose. Jesus did not heal everyone he came into contact with. He didn't give miraculous food to everybody that was hungry. He didn't calm every storm, make every cloud go away from the sky, and accomplish anything and everything that people might have wanted. There was a purpose for every miracle that Christ performed. Well, moving on in verse 12, or excuse me, verse 13, it says, and leaving them, so there's this brief interaction with the Pharisees. Again, other gospels give it more time. Verse 13, and leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread. This is the apostles. It did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them saying, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Church, in this text, we have illustrated that Christ knows how we feel because he's trying to say something important, but people are hungry. Have you ever been in that situation, parents? Have you ever been in that situation, uh, supervisors at work? I'm not going to say I've ever been in that situation as a pastor, but I'm sure I have. He is communicating something important, and the apostles are hungry. There's so many aspects to this. We'll get to his statement about the leaven of the Pharisees and leaven of of Herod in a moment. But first of all, they had seven leftover baskets of bread, and they didn't think to bring them with them. They only had one loaf, but even that one loaf, they are once again, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, once more, we're not going to have enough food. It's that density. We are looking at the instant replaying saying, how could you not see that all you have to do is have faith? And whether Jesus multiplies that one loaf into 12 loaves or two loaves or whatever it may be, or if you simply realize that food will be coming, that the response here is faith, not worrying about the one loaf that you have. The disciples are dense. But going back to, and we'll, we'll talk about them in a minute, going back to watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What is the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? The leaven of the Pharisees gets talked about a lot of different places in the Gospels. <clears throat> it is this, again, what does leaven do? It gets into a lump, it gets into a dough, and Christ uses leaven as a positive sense as it regards the kingdom of God and that it spreads 
and it works its way through the entirety of the world. But he also talks about the leaven of the Pharisees and that it got into the lump of religion, the lump of Judaism, and it worked its way through such that there was a great uh, disenfranchisement of people, a great legalism, and a great spiritual blindness that had come in. But here he's tying it to the leaven of Herod. What is that? Because Herod had no spiritual affiliation. Herod had no religious identity. So what is going on here? Well, we're only a few chapters away, or just last chapter, of talking about Herod and some of his problems that he had with uh, the followers of Christ and with the Jews at large. What is this leaven? There's a great uh, uh, level of diversity on perspectives of what the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod is if it's one particular thing that Jesus is pointing at. It could have to do with self-aggrandizement or, or this idea of, of pride. So the Pharisees came to Jesus saying, I want things on my terms, just like Herod had illustrated that he was very, very prideful or he had this level of self-grandeur. It could be simply disbelief. That Herod, when confronted with John the Baptist, as we talked about a few weeks ago, and his clear message, and, and the fact that he was so close to seeing it. Remember, Herod wanted to listen to John. He was, he was intrigued by John, but he never got to the point where he understood. Similarly, the Pharisees, they knew the scriptures inside and outside. They could recite them backwards and upside down. Yet they never got to the point where they understood the message of it. And I think this is the leaven that's ultimately being, being warned against. That you can, you can like listening to it. You can read it. As, as, as Joe said this morning in the catechism, you can have your Bible on your nightstand. You can carry it with you everywhere. You can have multiple apps on your phone that have Scripture in it. But unless it is something that is being illuminated by the Spirit and that you're consistently in, true understanding and true sight will not penetrate. What will penetrate is the leaven of being around it. I'm going to keep John in jail. And I've got this little totem this little, uh, this little person that's down in the dungeons that has the spiritual insight for me that I can go and talk to and feel like I'm having some sort of uh, uh, moralistic uh, moment. The Pharisees, they could certainly be involved in their spiritual activities on a day-in and day-out basis, lording it over the people. And that certainly felt good to them. This is the leaven that Jesus is warning his disciples against. This is the leaven that we need to be aware of as well. We cannot grow through osmosis. Having the word of God on our nightstand, having multiple apps on our phone, having an entire library and an entire uh, yearly church attendance record, whatever we may have, simply at arm's length is not sufficient to grow and it is actually a very dangerous thing because it gives us a false sense of security. Almost like apostles who spend all their time with Jesus but weren't seeing. And we see that in verse 17. And Jesus, aware of this, again, them talking about their bread, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, 12. 
When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets of full broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? As a prophet of our age said, what is wrong with you people? This is Jesus expressing his frustration with his apostles that they are far away, even though they're close. They are far away from understanding, even though they have that information. Going back to the earlier illustration, their adherence to a system, a worldview, a religion, a perspective was so strong that even though they were looking at the high-definition replay of precisely what Christ had done, they were still saying, no, I don't see it. I still think it's wrong. I don't, I don't agree with what I'm seeing. Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear. This is a text from Isaiah that Christ often employs, and other New Testament authors often employ, in talking about the fact that even though people receive revelation, they reject it. The apostles are in a dangerous place when it comes to this. Now, there is great resolution coming in the next couple of weeks, but Jesus continues to talk about simply being around him not being good enough. Look at verse 22. So we have the doubt from the disciples, but now we have another miracle. And this is a miracle, not just for a man, not just for the disciples, but a miracle for all. Verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and pleaded with him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he was asking him, do you see anything? And he looked up and was saying, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. This is perhaps one of the most bizarre miracles at a cursory reading that we have in the entirety of the New Testament. Why is it? Well, one, Jesus spits in a guy's eyes. That's always bizarre. I know David talked about this last week. But let's mention this again because this is important. Why spit? Well, I'll ask this question, and maybe you're much more sanitary than me, but if you ever hurt your hand, or if, when you were a child, if you hurt your hand, you, sl- you slam your thumb with a hammer, you, d- you get a splinter, what do you immediately do? Maybe I'm disgusting, but I remember I used to always put it in my mouth. I don't know what that accomplished, but there's something about that. But in the first century, spittle was seen as there being some sort of connection with the physician and the person. We don't have a lot of information about it, but know that it's not unique and weird to Jesus. For a first century audience reading this, they wouldn't be bothered by Jesus spitting on his hand and touching somebody. That wouldn't have been strange to them. But of course, it's strange to us, and I don't want my doctor doing it to me. So that's the first thing that bears mentioning. There's also an intimacy to that, but again, that's, that, that's beyond the scope of this morning. But the second interesting thing is that this miracle takes two tries. We don't see Jesus telling the waves to stop, and they kind of go from being big waves to being choppy surf. We don't see Jesus telling the, food, the bread and the fish to multiply, and the bread obeys, but the fish doesn't. 
we don't see Lazarus only being mostly dead and then being alive. This is the only miracle that happens in stages. Why is this? Now, <coughs> excuse me, at a very crass level, does it mean that Jesus wasn't really on? Or, at a theologically crass level, was it because this guy didn't believe enough? I think both of those things are wrong. Once again, we have to work from a theological perspective, acknowledging that if Christ could raise from, be risen from the dead, if Christ could do all the miracles that he did, then we are left with two questions. One, Jesus was not as powerful as the scripture testifies to, or two, there is a particular purpose in why he did it this way. What have we just been talking about? What's been kind of the theme of what we've seen in the last few chapters, but certainly in the verses that we looked at this morning? It has been that the disciples, the apostles in particular, have come most of the way. That the, the, the Pharisees were, had come partway. That Herod had come partway. But all three of these people, certainly from an antagonistic perspective for the Pharisees and for Herod, but simply from an ignorance perspective, a lack of faith perspective for the apostles, they had come part of the way, and they were seeing things, but not seeing things clearly. They trusted in Jesus, but not enough for the simple things in life. They'd only understood partially. And what does Jesus do to this man in front of the apostles? He brings him along partially, and then he gets him all the way there. Church, I believe, and much wiser men throughout history than, than I believe, that this miracle, which is only recorded in John, was used by Christ. This man's life, this man's malady, this man's disability, and the healing of it was used by Christ to illustrate that Christ alone has the ability to take you from not understanding to partially understanding, and that's not good enough, that you need Jesus to get the entire way there. It's fully, holy totally dependent upon Christ. You can't go from not seeing to seeing a little bit and then eke out the rest on your own. You can't go from not seeing to seeing a little bit on your own and then be drawn the rest of the way by Christ. The entire process, soup to nuts, beginning to end, is wholly and totally and completely dependent upon the sovereign work of God. We don't do it on our own. We don't get halfway there on our own because we were born to a Christian family. We don't get, you know, Jesus doesn't bring us along halfway, but then because we pay attention a lot or because we get a degree or because we memorize so much scripture, we have, you know, anything that we do, that's what gets us the rest of the way there. The entirety of the work is by Christ. Either Christ is sovereign or he is not. Because of Jesus, sight comes to this man. Physical sight. Because of Jesus, spiritual sight comes to the apostles, comes to the crowds, comes to us. John makes this point so clearly. Look at how many times 
these words are used. Verse 23, he took the blind man by the hand. He brought him out of the village after spitting in his eyes, laying his hands on him. He was asking him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he was saying, I see men for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home to not even enter the village. This picture of sight is what needs to be communicated. And although this blind man was the, the recipient of a divine intervention to restore his sight, it was for a purpose. It was a miracle, not just for one man, like very few miracles were. It was a miracle for all to illustrate the necessity of the sovereign hand of God in seeing and believing, in going from a place of having eyes to seeing, having ears to hearing. Because of Jesus, sight comes. Only Christ gives full sight. Only Christ gives full revelation. Only Christ gives full salvation. Turn with me to Ephesians 1. We won't spend a lot of time there because we still do have the Lord's Supper, but I want to illustrate this point, put a very fine point on it. What I'm not denying, what Christ is not denying, because again, we wholeheartedly endorse this this wonderful uh, truth that Joe shared in the catechism this morning. How do we glorify God? The children were spot on. The purpose of our life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And how do we do that? Jesus himself says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. We do this empowered by the Spirit, and we do this consistently, diligently, with hearts and minds prepared. So we are not at all saying that we have no part in the Christian life. This is a true and necessary way, thing that we need to understand about our devotion and our spiritual lives. But we have to understand that this is not through what we possess. We have to understand this is not from something that we muster up on our own. It's not that we don't succeed because we are better, brighter, more spiritually attuned, and others don't because they have some deficiency. There is no room to boast in the church of Christ outside of him and what he has accomplished and is accomplishing in us. Ephesians 1 makes this very, very clearly. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the richness of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him for an administration of the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens and things on the earth in him. There's so much in that text. It's a text I'm excited about sometime in the future, breaking down, exegeting, looking at line by line, and really diving into. But we're in Mark. We're not in Ephesians. 
But what this communicates, what Paul is talking about, what Paul is encouraging a church in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago, yet is still relevant and important for us to understand today is this great truth that there is this triune ministry of Father, Son, and Spirit that is completely dependent for us to bring about these blessings. That although we are called to obey, we are called to live in wisdom, we are called to use the riches and steward them that we are given well, that they all come from heaven, that every good gift comes from the Father of lights, as Peter writes. All of these things come from him and are given to us. What brought these dense apostles from a place where they saw miracle after miracle after miracle and were left kind of open mouth saying, I don't know what's going to happen next, to, as we're going to talk about next week, Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ. It wasn't Peter paying attention more. It wasn't Peter getting one more bit of information. It wasn't Peter uh, graduating from Bible college. It wasn't Peter getting all of his badges on his Awana vest. It wasn't uh, Peter giving more money to the temple. It wasn't Peter doing anything. It was Christ working in the lives of his people. Why? Because he chose him. He chose his apostles. He chose his people. He chose his church. He chose us. It's in Christ, as it says in verse 7 of Ephesians 1, that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions. And then he caused us to abound in the wisdom and insight. The, the, The knowledge, the understanding, the salvation... All of these things are by God's grace. It is an undeserving gift that we receive. Not part of it, not a little bit of it, not the fact that you can do 95% and he can do the other 5% if you're a particularly competent and capable person. But if you're somebody who's really down on their luck, you can do five and he can do 95. It's because we were dead and he did everything. We were blind and he did everything. We were dumb and unable to speak or hear, and he did everything. And so we respond in obedience. We respond in love. Church, it's very clear from our text this morning in the Gospel of Mark that the apostles, that the crowds, that we are dependent upon Christ to take us from not seeing to seeing the whole way. We cannot delude ourselves in thinking that we've done this because at that point, in that area, in that one thing that you can, you can point to and say, I did this, therefore I am this before Christ, at that point you are boasting in yourself and not boasting in the grace poured out and the blood shed by Christ. And I cannot imagine, I cannot fathom standing at the foot of the cross and saying that bit of blood was unnecessary. I did enough that that wasn't necessary. We have to leave ourselves. We have to diminish. We have to be humble enough to acknowledge 
that Christ's blood was fully necessary for our salvation, for our sight, for our life. With that in mind, we take this table rightly. With that in our hearts, we come to the supper and we receive it in the way it is intended to be received. No one in their right mind says, because this is an illustration of the blood of Christ shed for me, I'll take this 51 weeks out of the year, but that last week, I probably don't need to take it because I've done a lot, and he needs to acknowledge that. So I'm going to sit back, and I'm going to let that stay up there. No one in their right mind would say that. Thankfully, so many of us practice better than we think, practice better than we believe, understanding that it is day in, day out, week in, week out, that we are wholly dependent upon the sacrifice of Christ. And so although this wine doesn't actually grant us salvation, doesn't actually grant us that benefit, it is a reminder of the great grace, and it is a ministry to us of Christ on a weekly basis of that grace that was accomplished once and for all. And he draws near to us as we receive this, as we judge ourselves rightly, as we come to the table in a worthy manner, knowing that that worthiness is 100% his worthiness imputed to us by grace. So I'll invite you up this morning to receive the elements. Know that all the bread this morning is gluten-free. Have it that as you will. And so as you receive these elements, do consider... Consider where you are in your hearts. Consider where you are in your minds. Do you, is every milliliter of this small sip of juice necessary from a, from a, a, a metaphorical perspective? Or is one drop, one sip, one little bit something that you have brought to the table? at a bare minimum, there's so many things we can contemplate, so many things we can think about, so many things we can meditate upon as we receive the supper, and they are all good, and they're all worthy. But let this one thing be something you at least consider as you receive the elements this morning. So I'll invite the musicians to come up, and I'll lead us in prayer before we take the supper. Lord, we are not worthy on our own. Nothing that we have led to our salvation. Nothing that we have done made us more desirable in your eyes. Like the apostles, our natural disposition is to see the miraculous nature of your creation, the blessings that are so richly poured out upon us, and say, what have you done for me lately? It is only through the ministry of your Son, it is only through the Spirit that He sends in abundance and sufficiency that we are able to look at the good things we have and attribute them to your good and sovereign hand. So remind us that we are not worthy in ourselves, we are not worthy in our, cap our capabilities, our competencies, and certainly not our possessions, but that our worth is found solely in your Son. It's because of that we can come to this table in a worthy manner. Bless us as we participate in this wonderful sacrament you've given to us, given to your church. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.